The title for tonight's talk is Nothing to Show. No, it doesn't refer to tonight's show at all. Um, what I want to do in this talk is to address issues that have been raised in groups, in interviews, and in conversations throughout these few days. And when I entitled this show, the, the talk, Nothing to Show, um, what I have in mind is that sense that we have sometimes at the end of a day that has been a hard day of work and we feel that we haven't accomplished anything. And we ask ourselves, where has the day gone? And the feeling is that we have nothing to show for our efforts. And this is, of course, particularly true for a homemaker. And there's a particular form of frustration and despair that can get a hold on a, of us in those moments. What we perhaps don't realize that in those times is that the thrust of that question comes very, very much from the habits, from the formations, from the culture of I, me, mine. Issue is, I have nothing to show for that, for the day, for the efforts. On, on Friday, two days ago, I was in the Dharma talk, I was talking about what I call the ego project. And, and the wanting to have something to show comes from there, if you look at it closely. It's this project that, as I said before, puts us, as it were, in the center of the world. And we are in the center of the world in our glory or in our shame. As heroes or as villains. In grasping or in aversion. And in this wanting to give rise to the I, or the I wanting to give rise to itself, there is a, a wish to have some concrete proof, some evidence, that the I has succeeded in what it wanted to do. It's just the testing, checking out, as I can make that noise to see if the microphone is working. So the eye is constantly just checking out. And for this checking out of its success in its project, chooses concrete evidence 
to look for concrete evidence and that concrete evidence is what it wants to show the product and we fall for this ploy for this delusion and let, let, let me go from the generalities to the concrete in our work outside the home and the world of work as it were there are plenty of opportunities to find concrete proof of our achievements all these proofs are well, actually the possibility of finding such a proof unlike carrots dangling in front of us in front of us being held from a stick and we go after these carrots and we catch a few and those few carrots that we catch can be at sometimes a good paying job at other times can be success in our career even fame sometimes we may get a book published you may get a prize for something or other we may get promoted we may get a confirmation that we are indispensable at the office when we go away for a few days and to our great delight we find that everything has gone wrong while we were gone in fact just a, a couple of days ago i was uh, paging through the last issue of tricycle in the staff room right there and i had sent an article to tricycle and i was delighted to see my name in print there for the next issue of tricycle that an article is going to come up and of course it's very natural that the appreciation for that as send that article because i wanted it to be published i'm talking about that which goes beyond the appreciation for for doing what one wants to do and what needs to be done the problem arises when we start seeing what we accomplish as a proof of how good we are as a confirmation of our image of, as a validation of ourselves at that point it's at that point that the pursuit of the carrot take over takes over and we stop being involved in the doing and we are concerned with the thing that we can show to ourselves and to others whatever it can be after a while and that's true for many of us it certainly was true for me when i was a scientist in in my previous life as i call it life can soon become the pursuit of a resume what we do 
is for the sake of a better CV. In fact, life becomes a series of obituary improving activities. <laughs> three months ago, three months ago, um, a major figure in the U.S. Navy, I think the, the most important person in the U.S. Navy, whatever the name that is, Admiral Borda, committed suicide. You, you may have read the news of that. Um, just to encapsulate it, it, it seems that he had been wearing some medals on his chest that were not perhaps... The, the, the use of which was questionable. It wasn't absolutely clear that it was incorrect to wear them, but it was stretching things a bit too far. And some journalists had gotten wind of this, and in fact, there was an, he had uh, scheduled an interview, I think, with, with Newsweek or some other big magazine, where they were going to question him about it wearing those medals that morning before the interview he killed himself <coughs> at the service which was a major occasion attended by President Clinton among others someone saying the eulogy said and I quote he, Admiral Borda, had dedicated his adult life to fashioning a good name. Dedicated his adult life to fashioning a good name. And that's not that unusual, on the contrary. And in order to complete that job, he had no choice but to kill himself. And he got the most brilliant obituary anybody can get because his story of the medals took second place to what is seen as an act of heroism. And it's tragic. And it's tragic. And in some ways, in the world of work particularly, we often kill ourselves not with a gun, by overwork, by all the complications of a life of stress, because we are so intent in catching that carrot that's dangled in front of us. In the life of a homemaker, there are much Fewer opportunities, if any real, there are fewer, there are few, to show, to have anything to show for our efforts. No carrots to pursue, no quarters to meet, no CV, no paycheck, of course, no promotion, no bonus, no end of work. 
there's certainly a lot of frustration around it. And as the group was, somebody said in the group today, this, uh, the homemaker, homemaker's work is devalued. In fact, it's not seen as real work. The parent, parenting parent, is taken for granted. And the ordinary circumstances, of course, that's not always the case, but it tends to be the case. There's a, a silver lining to this, and that's that there are much fewer temptations to embark in this life that's guided by the ego project. And yet, temptation there is. Let's examine that a little bit. In doing our best for the, and the, the best in our ability for the welfare of our children, how much of a, our own project do we bring in? We had in, in one of the discussions in the morning, a lot was said about how to make things safe for our children. How to spare our children the difficulties that they may face. Surely that's a, a major priority. Surely that's uh, what we must do. But it's very important to know, to be able to tell the difference. When we are concerned about them and when when we bring into this equation the wish to get for them what we didn't have. See, that's the, the tip of the wedge of bringing our own project into the work with the children. Under the name of protecting them from fear, in fact, we can, there's a danger that we might, pass on to them a legacy of fear, of our own fears. Is it that I am protecting my child from fear? Or is it that I'm protecting myself? It's very important to tell the difference. And, and there's no simple way except by going in and examining and, and, and having a, a true sense of what's guiding me. How is it that things as simple when I go back to the groups in this reference as simple as brushing the children's teeth or having them brush their teeth or things as clear as putting limits 
can become such charged issues for parents. Particularly, particularly when parents come from different backgrounds, have different projects in mind. Somebody was saying to me today, when my child acts out, it reflects on me. So, it's very, very important not to just look at what appears to be on the surface to be the right thing to do, but actually to look inside, deeply inside ourselves, and be very clear of what are our motivations. Just be very clear whether there is, inside ourselves, some project that we are fashioning in any way. Something that we are fashioning about ourselves, about our children, about our family, about how we present ourselves. Because if we don't look into that clearly, things could take tragic turns. Not to use the welfare of our children as a cover for not not really questioning what moves us. How much is our wanting our children to look good, to excel in, what is it, sports, music, to bring a good report card, or even to become good Buddhists? How much of that is about the children and how much of that is about ourselves? Just to investigate that, just to be clear on that. And of course, here's where the practice becomes our invaluable ally. And here is, I think, the pivotal role of retreats like this. But in a way, we have the, the two sides of this equation. In this hall, typically, not always, but typically, we are sitting and turning our gaze inside. Through those windows, uh, mildly now, much less mildly at all the times, we can hear the sounds of the children. We are reminded of all this that's happening. Again, somebody in the group today was saying how valuable, how valuable it was for her that she had been coming here to sit and to do this, this deep, deep introspection, inquiry into herself. And in the same place, she has a family and she has all these issues to look into. It's this, this coming together of the silent practice that's typical of retreats and what we could call the noisy practice that's typical of home. 
it is here that there's a chance to build bridges and to integrate these two things. And by the way, is not, and you know that as well as I do, is not that the sitting practice is free of the I project. Quite the contrary. The I project is constantly showing itself in in our sittings. I said constantly. Not necessarily constantly, that's not the right word, but often enough showing itself in our sittings. Just as we come to end of a sitting, we evaluate and we say, that was a good sitting. That was a bad sitting. That was a good sitting can imply that was a, a sitting to write home about. That's a sitting to, to tell my friends about. Perhaps that won't sit too well with, a, say, a class reunion or something like that, who may not understand, but yeah, enough <laughs> so-called dharma cycles <laughs> in which you could brag about how good your sits, your sits and your retreats were, and uh, they may not know the incongruity of that. But just as we can create an ego around uh, the sittings, we can also see what it means. We can see how the mind creates that. We can see how this is originated. And we can see in its repetitiveness how totally asinine it is. And, and when we start seeing through this, what I've been calling the ego project, just to simplify things a bit, when we start seeing through it, it really runs out of steam. Its power is gone. Even if it continues to have some momentum, even if our mind plays with it here and there, even if I see my name in tricycle and, uh, you know, the ego gets a, a chance to shine for a second, the project itself is doomed. When these two practices, the silent and the noisy one, the, the sitting and the family one, come together, we can really discover the emptiness of I. What does it mean to, in very concrete terms, to remove the weight of I from the task of being a parent. It means very simply that instead of being ourselves being motivated by our agendas, by pre-existing agendas, sometimes generations, all agendas in fact, 
we can just be present with our child. And as Julie very aptly said on the first day of her first talk, the heart of the practice is being present. And that means being present with self, of course, in the sitting practice. And it means being present with our child in parenting, being present with our partner, in partnering, being present with our friends, even with people we've never met before in life. That is the greatest gift we can give to a child. Much more important than drawing a list of things to do, as we all do that, of course, I'm not saying to eliminate all lists. There are things that we might forget, we have to put on a list. But what we should not forget, and we, if necessary, we should make a list of, is be present, be present, be present. And if we need to put a times on that, we could put time slots like 7 to 8, be present. 8 to 9, be present. 9 to 10, be present. No gaps. Be present, of course, while doing dishes. Be present while looking at your child. Be present while changing diapers. And, and forget about time limitations. For any number of children you have, you can find a family that has twice as many children and can make, it, make a go of it. Somehow, one manages. I'm not minimizing the work, but still. This is the priority. And priorities need to be attended to. Just as so very beautifully you make the priority of being here. And, and when you need to sit, when you need to come to a retreat, you know that that's a priority and you need to do that. And, and if you come to a retreat and if you were to make a list, again, it would be a very simple list. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Pay attention while you breathe. Pay attention while you listen. Pay attention while you emote, pay attention while you feel. And if you do that, the, the extraordinary thing, the surprising thing, is, is the feast of intimacy that can break out. Feast of intimacy. Intimacy with self. Intimacy with the child, intimacy with others, and intimacy with the world. May all beings be free of the tyranny of having to have something to show. May all beings discover being present. May all beings come to know intimacy 
with self, with others, with the world. Let's sit for a few minutes.